This is Finding Center, a daily half-hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Navigating Modern Media. Van C. Gessel, Dean of the BYU College of Humanities when this address was given, will give his message entitled, The Welding Link of Culture. In the 128th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Prophet Joseph Smith describes a welding link that must exist between the past, the present, and the future in order for us to be made perfect along with both our ancestors and our posterity. He refers, of course, to the offering of the ordinances of exaltation so that we can present to the Lord a book containing the records of our dead, which shall be worthy of all acceptation. Those who have done any family history work will know the great sense of fulfillment and gratitude that comes when we can learn enough about an ancestor that she ceases to be just another name with a death date to us and is resurrected in our minds as a living human being endowed with a unique personality and all the other human traits that help us develop a connection or a welding link to her. In the emotional sense, this link may be something like the taming process that the fox teaches the little prince in Antoine de Saint-Juperi's classic tale. To me, the fox declares, you are still nothing more than a little boy who is just like a hundred thousand other little boys, and I have no need of you, and you on your part have no need of me. To you I am nothing more than a fox like a hundred thousand other foxes. But if you tame me, then we shall need each other. To me you will be unique in all the world. To you I shall be unique in all the world. Once we have tamed our ancestors, they are unique in all the world to us, and our attachment to them grows. But what I want to propose to you today is that there may be additional essential forms of linkage between ourselves and our loved ones of both yesterday and tomorrow. Our predecessors lived lives very different from those which we are experiencing today, and it's an absolute reality that our posterity will inhabit a world very unlike the one we know. Just as my mother, who is here with us today, born just 15 years after the Wright brothers took a flying leap at Kitty Hawk, sees her great-grandson Andrew growing up in a world that none of the most creative science fiction writers of her day even began to imagine. As we ponder the Lord's injunctions to us in sections 88, 90, and 93, where we're told to diligently study good books and history and geography and languages and peoples and virtually every other imaginal discipline, I can't help but wonder whether the Lord, in fact, wants us to forge a link between the civilizations of the past and our own day, and then to transmit them on to our own progeny. Perhaps one of the welding links that will help each of us to be tethered more securely to our ancestors can be achieved by familiarizing ourselves with the cultures in which they were born, lived, married, wept, laughed, and created families of their own. Surely their lives were greatly influenced by the books they read, the music they enjoyed, the dances they danced just as are yours. It seems to me it would be a terrible waste, since we are the inheritors of the cultural legacy they created, to allow it to die by dismissing it as old-fashioned. And yet it is the death of earlier cultures, due to our failure to study and pass them along, that is of great concern to me. The popular culture of the present has become so pervasive, so omnipresent, and so hypnotically narcotic in its technological manifestations that it's all but fully succeeded in destroying any sense of obligation to learn anything about former days. After all, the word classic to many only takes you as far back as classic rock. Why sniff around in the musty old archives of a lifeless past when you can simply insert the iPod headphones into your ears and thereby fully immerse yourselves in a study of... Well, surely there's something in there that will help you in your quest for eternal life. 
I hesitate to be too critical of contemporary pop culture, if only because some of you are pretty heavily into some aspects of it. And I have found that the youth of the church are, to a surprising degree, more willing to listen to a pulpit-pounding sermon on the law of chastity than to have the worth of their favorite music or movies or video games called into question. But there are two significant perils in being unfamiliar with the cultural treasures of the past and being excessively absorbed in contemporary pop culture. First, you run the risk of breaking that critical link with the past. And second, you may be overwhelmed as a torrent of images and sounds floods over you like the combined plagues of Egypt. And so I will have to run the risk of offending some of you as I suggest a few ways in which the modern media glut keeps you not only from accessing the culture of the past, but also most perilously perilously from having unbroken access to the Spirit of the Lord. And as I understand section 121, we are not counseled to have the Holy Ghost as our intermittent companion. I hope you will not dismiss out of hand the following brief critique of contemporary pop culture. Please understand that I am not trying to suggest that you have bad taste, merely that the range of tastes offered to you through most of the current media is extremely limited, and that there are numerous ways in which today's popular forms of entertainment promote values that are glaringly inconsistent with the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you already know that because you've grown up in this culture. Just as the Lord has reserved his best spirits, that would be you, for the last days, the adversary is giving us his very worst. Over the course of time, as standards have eroded away, Satan has taken everything sacred and pulled it down to his hellish level. It simply can't just be a cosmic coincidence that the tangible object that the adversary most craves, a physical body, is precisely the object toward which he aims the most lethal of his fiery darts in his manipulation of the entertainment media. How to make mortals regard the human body as less than holy? Very simple. Strip its sacredness of all its modest coverings and parade it to public view. Batter it and explode it and riddle it with bullets. Display it nakedly engaged in its most intimate activities to make sure the viewer or listener comes to consider public performances of sexual activity as commonplace. What our Father in Heaven regards as a holy of holies, Satan treats as an open-set film studio. You can almost hear the fiendish laughs of the demons over every depiction of the physical bodies they so desperately envy, being exposed to public view and treated like so much meat in a butcher shop. Some of you will regard me as hopelessly out of touch. I hope I am. I would rather make entertainment choices more closely aligned with those of Gordon Hinckley than of Hugh Hefner. I'm sure you know the directions for how to boil a frog. He'll jump out of the pot if the water's too hot when you first put him in it. But if you start him in tepid water and then gradually turn up the heat, he won't notice how bad it's getting for him until it's way too late. I think many of the spiritual challenges you face come because the pot of water into which you were born in today's society is already at the boiling point, and the cultural milieu in which you live can feel normal unless you do a couple of very important things to test its temperature. First, acquaint yourselves with the great cultural traditions of the past to give you some point of comparative reference and to be reminded of how difficult issues can be treated with respect and restraint. Second, and most important, evaluate everything that you take into your mind and spirit using the standards established by the Lord, whose only purpose is to shield you from evil and prepare you for the better good. I think most of our problems with the popular media could be solved very simply if we would apply the Lord's clear standards. In our entertainment choices, we must seek after those works which are virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy. Mormon also provided us a clear measure from the Lord. For every good thing which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ, 
wherefore ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. But whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil, and believe not in Christ, and deny him, and serve not God, then ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil. Using the Lord's standards, how is contemporary culture faring? Last week I pulled up Billboard magazine's list of the top 20 pop songs in the country. Then I read the lyrics to all 20. Warning, do not attempt this at home. Even after I had mentally bleeped out all of these obscenities, which were legion, the message that emerged was an ugly, surprisingly consistent message of violence, hate, prejudice, drug peddling, an obsessive preoccupation with the carnal, and a disturbing denigration of the disposable, interchangeable sex objects known as women. I could not in good conscience recommend to you more than one out of those 20 songs, with a begrudging admission that another three are probably not overtly destructive. President Boyd K. Packer has taught, Some music is spiritually very destructive. You young people know what kind that is. The tempo, the sounds, and the lifestyle of those who perform it repel the spirit. It is far more dangerous than you may suppose, for it can smother your spiritual senses. End of quote. Now, what about movies? I've been listening carefully for the past 19 years, and I haven't heard any prophet during that time declare null and void the straightforward declaration of President Ezra Taft Benson, who was, I might note, president of the church in 1986 when he said, quote, Don't see R-rated movies or vulgar videos or participate in any entertainment that is immoral, suggestive, or pornographic, end of quote. Nor have I noticed a significant reduction in the portrayals of violence, profanity, and sexuality in motion pictures since that time. Au contraire. For the strength of youth similarly provides a useful standard. Quote, do not attend, view, or participate in entertainment that is vulgar, immoral, violent, or pornographic in any way. End of quote. What does that particular standard do to the excuse, well, it's only rated that way because of the violence? or just because of some bad language? And why do some think they have reached a certain level of adulthood where prophetic counsel no longer applies to them? To those who stand at the doorways leading into graphic representations of the blood and sins of our current generation, the Lord's call is, Come ye out from the wicked, and be ye separate, and touch not their unclean things. You probably ought to know that while you were sleeping, Hollywood has pulled another fast one on you. Just within the past month, without fanfare or public proclamation, the often unreliable MPAA rating board suddenly upped the number of times that that infamous word, the vilest of vulgarities, the one beginning with the sixth letter of the alphabet, if you don't know what I'm talking about, can be used in PG-13 movies. For some time now, only one use was allowed by the ratings board. But within the past month, the PG-13 rating has been awarded to one film containing five uses of that vulgarity, Even more disturbing is the fact that after a documentary maker appealed the R rating given to his film, he was allowed to distribute it with a PG-13, even though the vulgar word is uttered 42 times in the space of 85 short minutes. Some of you know even better than I that there are scores of PG-13 movies that are more vulgar and suggestive than some R-rated films. These are the leering, snickering films aimed at a hormonally hobbled teenage audience. They are relentlessly obsessed with crude depictions and descriptions of sexual activity and are blatantly offensive to the spirit. And parents, unfortunately, too often turn a blind eye to the viewing of such films since, after all, they're just rated PG-13. Meanwhile, the film industry, ever eager to have us pay more for our passions, has started to include a good deal of inappropriate but 
unrated material in the DVD releases of their films. And too often it's intentionally unrated because it's more violent and crude than the theatrical release. With so much that is odious to the spirit being hurled at you from movie screens, I would suggest that you spend at least as much time checking on the content of a film before you go see it as you do comparing cell phone rates. There are any number of good websites, including kidsinmind.com and screenit.com, that will give you detailed information about a movie's potentially objectionable features. The bottom line message here is very simple. Don't trade your birthright for a mess of footage. Okay, so you're living in a society that's nearing the final boiling point, a world that continues its free fall plummet from Kolob while we're trying to crawl our way back. What can you do to avoid being of that world and its culture if you have heeded prophetic warnings and recognize that you are virtually submerged in very hot water? In addition to simple avoidance and endless vigilance to keep the spirit with you in all your activities, I would suggest that additional strength can come as you tighten the cultural link between yourself and your ancestors so that you will have much of great worth to enrich your own life and subsequently pass along to your descendants. As with anything that is of true spiritual consequence, however, you must first foster within your heart a desire to learn from the past. And you will no doubt have to fight some significant battles to pull yourself away from the gravitational pull of today's popular culture and media. I encourage you to drink deeply from the wells of culture, your own native culture as well as the civilizations of other places and other times. I'm going to focus my remaining comments on the essential role that reading plays in the lifelong education that the Lord would have you pursue. But please bear in mind that what I say about the ingestion of books applies equally well to our need and responsibility to listen to good music, to study great paintings, to attend plays and dances, and in many other uplifting ways to immerse ourselves in the culture that shaped the lives of those to whom we would wish to be linked for eternity. I think I would much rather be with my great-grandparents than, say, with Brittany. (laughs) Why am I so excitable on this simple subject of reading? Because it's happening less and less in our society, most likely because of the rapid development of technological tools that force-feed us contemporary culture at all times and in all places. Hmm. Sort of sounds like it's in direct competition with our efforts to stand as witnesses of Christ at all times and in all places. Last year, the National Endowment for the Arts published a study titled Reading at Risk. The study found that over the past 20 years, the percentage of adult Americans who read literature has dropped by more than 10%, paralleling a decline in total reading of books, particularly in the age group between 18 and 24. During the year 2002, 90 million adults in the United States did not read a single book. And I think you can guess what young people are doing with their time instead of reading. You're all going to get thumb cramps from those cell phones. What are the benefits of reading? T.S. Eliot said, We read a lot of books because we cannot know a lot of people. The only way in mortality that we can really come to know our deceased kindred is by reading about the kinds of lives they lived, whether they happened to be saints or scoundrels. Much can be learned from the choices made by both types it would be short-sighted to shun the scoundrels and thereby lose the opportunity to learn from their mistakes rather than having to repeat them ourselves. So, for example, while it's not my personal intention to violate the law of chastity, and I don't mind declaring that publicly, I will live the rest of my life interacting with and be under a sacred obligation as a disciple of Christ to serve as a positive influence on people who regularly do engage in immoral activity. 
Frankly, I would rather gain my understanding of the hearts and minds of such people by reading Madame Bovary, or The Heart of the Matter, or The Once and Future King, than from watching visual depictions of the sin that cannot help but simultaneously glorify and debase it merely by the act of showing it, no matter what moral stance, if any, they choose to take toward the action. Sven Berkowitz, in his book, The Gutenberg Elegies, writes, quote, Reading is at once a movement and a comment of sorts about the place one has left. To open a book voluntarily is at some level to remark the insufficiency either of one's life or of one's orientation toward it. When we read, we not only transplant ourselves to the place of the text, but we modify our natural angle of regard upon all things. We reposition the self in order to see differently. When we enter a novel, no matter what novel, we step into the whole world anew. For the space of our reading, and perhaps beyond, it changes our relation to all things. What reading does ultimately is keep alive the dangerous and exhilarating idea that life has a unitary pattern inscribed within it, a pattern that we could discern for ourselves if we could somehow lay the whole of our experience out like a map. End of quote. I might ask, how is the experience of reading that Birkertz describes here qualitatively different from the process of eternal progression? Can we ever become better until we sense and wish to transcend the insufficiencies of our current life? But how do we gain an awareness of those insufficiencies? Through prayer and repentance, of course, but also through reading. Do we have any hope of becoming more like our Creator if we cannot modify our natural angle of regard upon all things to see things differently? A vision altered, I would suggest, through reading. If we fail somehow to acquire the skill of entering into unfamiliar worlds anew, how can we avoid being trapped, literally damned, in our current imperfections, and how can we ever begin to imagine the infinities where God dwells and labors? Eight years ago, just after I was appointed Dean of the College of Humanities, Elder Henry B. Eyring, then Commissioner of Church Education, challenged me to spend some time pondering the answer to a very simple question. He asked, why do we teach a book like The Great Gatsby at BYU? Now, there are many simplistic, snobbishly pedantic ways to dismiss the question altogether. I've chosen to take it seriously, especially since this devotional is being broadcast. <laughs> As I have pondered Eller Eyring's question, a piece of a part of an answer is beginning to crystallize in my head. Before I venture to unload it on you, and please don't get your hopes up too high, I have to refer to a favorite passage from one of C.S. Lewis's space fantasy novels titled Paralandra. In this alternate reading of the Garden of Eden calamity, Lewis conjures up a second Eve. Still innocent but learning much about her paradisiacal garden home, Eve considers the ways in which God's perspectives are superior to ours, and she muses, When I was young, I could imagine no beauty but this of our own world. But God can think of all, and all different. Can we, I wonder, ever be gods and goddesses of our own universes, eternal parents of imperfect beings who will have to go through the mortal travails, as each one of us will have done, without somehow having an understanding of and even an empathy toward our flawed prodigy, an empathy better learned, I would suggest, from reading Hamlet than from listening to hip-hop? How do we school ourselves to comprehend, even marvel at and love the mental and emotional worlds of other people? since we can never live inside their heads or experience life just the way they experience it. How will perfected humans, looking down from the heights of their own Mount Olympuses, 
be able to observe the stupid, bungling, relentlessly sinful acts of their children and resist the temptation to thunderbolt them all to ashes. The training program to develop such divine restraint, or should we call it charity, is no doubt a complex one. But I seriously doubt that the products of contemporary popular culture will show up on the syllabus for that training curriculum. Rather, I anticipate we will need to prepare ourselves to understand the heights and depths of human experience vicariously, perhaps another of our minuscule attempts to mirror the Christ, through our reading and expanded cultural literacy. We can begin to prepare ourselves now so that in the eternities we can spend some gloriously bright, clear days with our ancestors, discussing the books both they and we have read, listening to mutually evocative masterpieces of music, sharing a bag of perfected popcorn as we laugh at Buster Keaton, weep along with Tom and Ma Joad, and sing and dance with Fred and Ginger. But this is a lot more than just cool family home evenings with the eternal fam. And why is Fitzgerald's novel about adultery, obsession, alcoholism, and murder taught at a place like BYU? Well, in part, because all those who are crowned with glory and immortality and eternal lives will have in their own kingdoms an array of offspring who are in their own ways disobedient, annoying, and horrifying. We will have to learn how to deal with an abundance of our own Jay Gatsby's and Sweeney Todd's and Paul Potts and Marquis's Desaad and Brian David Mitchell's. And just as it is presently the work and the glory of our Father in Heaven to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life, in spite of all He knows about us, which is everything, it will hopefully be someday our work and our glory to help provide those same blessings for countless souls who are very much unlike ourselves, and many of them will be supremely unlovable. In my experience, the best way to come to know such people and not merely to know them, but to know them well enough to be able to love them beneath all the layers of their sins and imperfections is through the instrument of good books. After all, the Lord has repeatedly said that it is out of the books that we shall be judged. We each have an eternal moral obligation not only to flee the wickedness that has polluted far too much of the culture of our day, but also to seek after the good, the true, the virtuous, the uplifting that has been produced in the cultures of mankind for countless centuries. None of us will be in mortality long enough to be able to experience all that is good there. So how can we afford to waste our time on the bad? Already in the cultural storehouse of humanity is a huge body of works that will help you better understand who you really are and train you how to relish the nobility as well as the sufferings of the individuals depicted in them, to glory in the quiet strains of hummable melodies, to savor the intelligent turn of lyrical phrase, to laugh and weep at the humanizing films of past and present, instead of the dehumanizing mate and maim movies being served up on far too many local screens. Parents must expose their children to an endlessly regenerative menu of good entertainment that can help displace the mindless slop of the garbage heap. But it will take committed parents, siblings, and leaders who make the conscious decision to bring the past into the present, to restore the great works to life in their homes, to buy and play for their families the movies and recordings, to display the art, and to experience together the masterpieces pieces that I can only imagine are loved by our Lord and Master Himself. There are so many truly inspiring works that our forebears, often under the influence of divine inspiration, were able to create. And could it possibly be that we, without them, cannot be saved? As disciples of Christ, we have a divine obligation to love the good and the beautiful and to keep ourselves unspotted by the bad and the ugly. In his first presidency message in last September's Ensign, President Hinckley assured us that, quote, the situation is far from hopeless, 
and that there is no need to stand still and let the filth and violence overwhelm us or to run in despair. The tide, high and menacing as it is, can be turned back if enough people will add their strength to the strength of the few who are now effectively working. I believe the challenge to oppose this evil is one from which members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as citizens, cannot shrink. End of quote. May I encourage you to steep yourselves in the cultural riches of your ancestors. I promise you will be a better, more sensitive, more understanding and appreciative individual, a better spouse, parent, and citizen, and disciple of Christ as a result. The more links you forge with your ancestors through their culture, the richer the legacy you will have to pass along to your own children and grandchildren. Begin to teach your own children from the earliest possible moment in their development the intellectual and emotional and spiritual value of reading and of cultural linkage. If we continue to lose ground against the torrent of digitized culture that moves so fast that it cannot be given a moral rating, we run the risk of losing our souls. I testify to you that we have a loving Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who atoned for the bad within us and around us so that we might fully embrace the good. I bear witness that he has the power to weld us together with all of our loved ones from all dispensations and for all eternity, and that we can draw closer to them by coming to know them as individuals who actually lived and labored, who read books and listened to music, and whose lives were shaped by their faith and by their culture. That we may, in all our labors and all our recreation, help to create those welding links with those who came before us and those who will follow, links of faith, of love, and of reverence for the finest things that the human soul has created, is my sincere prayer in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for a half hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Navigating Modern Media. Van C. Gessel gave his message entitled The Welding Link of Culture. Speeches on Finding Center are often edited for broadcast. Find links to the full talks and access the rest of our Finding Center episodes on the free BYU radio app, available wherever you get your apps. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.